Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Amelia Magia was feeling rotten. It had started with a toothache, which her dentist figured was easy enough to treat. He pulled the tooth. But instead of the pain going away, it got worse. Not only that, but the hole left behind in her gums refused to heal. It stayed open, a nasty, bloody ulcer in Amelia's mouth. This went on for months, with the mysterious pain spreading from her teeth to her jaw to completely unrelated parts of her body, her hips and her feet. She was only 24 years old. She had always been energetic and lively. Molly, as her friends called her, was a hard worker, getting her first job in her teens and becoming financially independent enough that she moved out of her family's home and into an all-female boarding house. But in May 1922, she felt like she was physically falling apart. She went yet again to her doctor, a surgeon named Joseph Neff, hoping that he might be able to stop the pain in her jaw. He took a look inside her mouth and gently touched her face. Her jawbone snapped. Horrified, Dr. Neff removed the bone fragment, not by conducting any sort of surgery, but by simply pulling it out of her mouth. Within six months, Molly was dead. Her doctor was sure she'd been poisoned, and he was also sure she wouldn't be the last to die. Years of lawsuits and court hearings followed, not only making headlines nationwide, but forever changing how America protects its workers. This isn't your traditional true crime story. This one is about a mysterious killer unleashed on workers and consumers worldwide by greedy companies that straight up lied to protect their profits. The death of Molly Magia isn't a typical homicide. This wasn't a case of someone attacking with a knife or a gun. There were no kidnapping attempts or cyanide tablets. This crime was much more systematic and widespread than that. Molly's story began in the 1910s, which is when she and two of her sisters, Albina and Quinta, all got hired to work at one of the most talked about companies in town. Their job was pretty repetitive and decidedly not glamorous, but the pay for the time was incredible. If you were fast at your work, you might bring home the equivalent of $40,000 a year in today's money. Not bad at all, considering many of the workers started in their teens, and some hadn't even graduated high school. The job was in a small town called Orange, New Jersey, painting watch dials. It sounds boring, right? Well, to Molly and crew, this was cutting-edge work because the paint they were using was mixed with a newly discovered substance that glowed in the dark. The substance was radium. 
It had just been discovered in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie when the two found it in some ore they were studying. Now, they knew already about other elements being radioactive. In fact, X-rays, the ray is short for radiation, were introduced two years before the discovery and had started to be used as medical treatments experimentally. Doctors found that people suffering from cancer responded really well to X-ray therapy. So that was one of the first uses tested for this new element, radium. But radium seemed destined for more. This is Shelley Carol Sheik, president of the Historical Society in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Madame Curie loved to go into her lab and watch the little radium, the granules in the vials, glow a pretty blue. She called them her fairy lights. Curie wasn't the only one enamored with the stuff. People didn't understand the nuances of the science, but they did read the headlines about radium fighting cancer. Anything that shrinks cancer in the body has to be good for you. That was the way of thinking in the 1920s. Because of that, we started using it as a cure-all. We used it for constipation, hay fever, gout, low libido, back pain, arthritis. You named it, radium was the cure. I'm going to get you a Pearly Whites Brighter. Try radioactive toothpaste. Is that a sad, boring piece of toast? Spread on some radium butter for a tasty treat. Looking worn out? Don't forget to treat your skin with radium cosmetics for that bright, youthful look. That little montage was by the science-focused media company Seeker, which also drew this analogy that I like. It was like the early 1900s version of kale, except instead of being a leafy green, it was horrifically deadly radiation salts. People were convinced that radium could cure just about anything, and they were willing to pay big bucks for it. Pharmacists gave out radium pills for people to take. We opened clinics, so you would go there and you would pay to soak in a bath of irradiated water. They claimed that radium would restore vitality and keep you younger looking. It would make you live longer. It was the wonder drug of the 1920s. You could do more than soak in irradiated water. You could drink it. Manufacturers sold radium-lined jugs for 200 bucks, about $4,000 in today's money, and encouraged people to drink six to eight glasses of water from that jug daily. If you were the traveling sort, never fear, you could buy individual bottles of irradiated water too. These products were all incredibly expensive because it's tough to find radium. It occurs naturally in the Earth's crust, but it's rare. In Science for Dummies terms, radium is created from the decay of the uranium atom, so you can find trace amounts of radium in uranium ore. But by trace amounts, I mean it takes about seven tons of ore to produce a single gram of radium. It was called liquid sunshine. It was amazing. Everybody wanted a piece of the radium pie. Sure, everybody wanted a piece, but because it was so rare and expensive, Only rich people had a shot at getting any. High society folk could find radium in their makeup and face creams. Advertisements in newspapers touted radium as a way for the elite to stave off gray hair. Now, these products weren't pure radium, of course, and manufacturers are inherently greedy, so they luckily kept the amounts of radium in the products to a bare minimum. Doing otherwise would cut the profit margin. But people loved this stuff and the demand kept growing. So the products kept shape-shifting too. There were glow-in-the-dark necklaces and neckties. There were furniture sprays that promised to kill all germ life while leaving a gorgeous sheen. We loved radium so much, we put it in our playing cards so they'd glow in the dark. We put it in our cigarettes. We put it in our cleaners. We put it in our shoe polish. 
The Germans put it in their chocolate. We put it in suppositories. And then there was paint. The first brand was called Undark. Its slogan was Undark. It doesn't get dark in the dark. It was a mix of radium powder, water, gum arabic, and zinc sulfide. The zinc gave it a green glow rather than its natural blue glow. It was a novelty for consumers, but what really made the business take off was World War I. That glow-in-the-dark paint seemed like a godsend. The military wanted it used on just about everything. Airplane controls, ship panels, compasses, you name it. Then, soldiers realized they had another use for it. Because up until then, men typically carried a pocket watch. But during World War I, when they were going away to war, they found that turning on a light to look at their pocket watch would alert the enemy of their position. So the fact that they could see their watch in the dark and it would glow changed the way watch sales took place. Millions of soldiers ended up owning glow-in-the-dark watches. And after the war died off, The craze didn't die off. The demand was so high that towns with companies using luminescent paint might hire 100 or 150 young women. And women is generous. Some of these were straight-up girls. A few were as young as 11. Kate Moore, an author who wrote The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, said, They were kind of suited to this work because if you think of the tiny, tiny numbers on watches, you know, some of them were only a millimeter in width, numbers that they had to paint, and the girls couldn't go over the parameters. The small hands of these young teenage women were particularly suited to this job. That's more speaking in a presentation. I also interviewed her about a year ago, so you'll hear sound from different sources. Little hands helped the work along, but so did very fine brushes. If you've ever painted with any kind of brush, you know that keeping the tip tapered can be tricky. Well, for this to work, it had to be absolutely teeny tiny as possible, or you would paint outside the lines. So the women were trained to lick the bristles. Not lick-lick, but lip-pointing. If you've ever seen somebody thread a needle, you might have seen them put the tip of the thread in between their lips and pull it out smooth to make sure the end of the thread didn't fray as it went into the tiny needle eye. That's what these women did. They put the brush to their lips, then dipped the brush in the paint, and then they painted the tiny little numbers on the watches and clocks. As Moore writes, lip dip paint. Hour after hour, day after day, week after week. It's what they were told to do. This is former Radium Girl Marie Rossiter in a 1980s documentary. My first day at work, well, I thought I didn't like it. Because after, you know, they learn you to put the thing in your mouth, that's the first thing they taught you. And I felt when I went home at noon, I'd never come back. She told her mom about the practice, and mom got worried. Marie could have canceled the job right then, but two things kept her there. Number one, she was assured by employers that the paint was safe, that if anything, working with the radium would make the girls healthier. And number two, there was the pay. Well, when I first started, I was getting seventeen fifty a week. And when I left the dime store, I was only making $5. That's what I liked more about than the work, <laughs> the money. Because <laughs> I could buy what I want. And I always thought, God, I was blessed with this anyway, so keep at it. $17.50 is about $450 today. Now, the girls not only worked with radium paint all day, but they wound up taking it home with them, too. It was under their nails and in their hair, sprinkled on their clothing and dusting their shoes. 
The women would walk home from work at night, literally glowing like otherworldly beings. Some loved it so much, they would skip showering, especially if they had a party to go to. Dial painting was a coveted job, so the telltale glow was a bit of silent showboating. At the end of the workday, knowing that whatever was left in their jars would be wasted, they'd sometimes play with the stuff, painting their fingernails or painting mustaches on their faces. And one time we had one girl that even painted her teeth and and held her mouth open till it dried on there. See, it dried. And then the three of us, we went in the dark room to make faces at each other, see. And then you can, you don't see nothing, nobody. All you see is the radium. So all you're looking at is eyebrows and mustaches and your teeth. (laughs) If the girls had known that Marie Curie would die in 1934 of a blood disorder caused by handling radium, they might not have been so lighthearted about the substance. But they didn't know it then. Some of them would never know it, because some of them would die long before Curie, long before everyday people were told that radium was a sneaky substance that slithered into your bones, replacing the calcium, leaving them brittled and honeycombed. But it wasn't just their bones at risk. Because their bones absorbed radium, their bones became radioactive. They became radioactive. Many of them did die very young, and some of them died from sarcomas, cancerous bone tumors that are are very rare, and that's a direct result of the radium poisoning. Not right away, mind you. The luminescent paint had small enough amounts of radium that a day's worth of work wouldn't expose you to much. But a week's mine. Those sarcomas were almost like a time bomb. They were, you know, the radium that the girls had ingested as teenagers. Sometimes those sarcomas wouldn't start to grow until the woman was in her 40s. So you might be wondering, okay, but where's the crime? If they didn't know radium made you sick, how could this enter a crime of the century territory? Well, because there were people who knew. Plenty of people. The very people best situated to have intervened and saved these women's lives. But instead of saving them, they condemned them to die by lying through their teeth. Molly Magia's death was slow and painful. The mysterious ailment that plagued her had eaten away at her bones and infected her blood. Finally, it weakened her jugular. She drowned in her own blood. That was December 1922. Helen Quinlan died next in June 1923. Next came Irene Rudolph, then Catherine O'Donnell, then Hazel Cuser. By 1927, some 50 women had died horrible, painful deaths, including Sarah Carlo. Sarah was a rarity at the company called the United States Radium Corp because she started working at the ripe old age of 28. So when she started feeling achy and run down in her early 30s, she figured there was a more pedestrian reason. She was getting old. That explained why she was tired. But even in 1924, it was odd for a 30-something to start needing a cane to walk. She became convinced something was wrong. In 1925, she dropped too much weight and started bruising at the slightest touch. She was admitted to the hospital. The doctors described her as being profoundly toxic. Her glands were hot and tender, her face was swollen, and she was running a temperature between 102 and 105. They had to give her a blood transfusion, but she continued to decline. 
By this point, the women's plight was starting to become known. As Kate Moore writes, that might be because a male employee also died in 1925. He was the plant's chemist, Dr. Edwin Lehman. His scientist peers called him a quote-unquote martyr to radium. It was around this point a doctor named Harrison Martland started investigating the cases. He began with Sarah Carlo, who became the first of the radium girls to be tested for radioactivity while still alive. Until Martland used Sarah as a guinea pig, the only way doctors knew to confirm the presence of radiation was to test in death. Martland devised a breath test that wasn't easy for someone as weakened as Sarah to do, but she fought through it. She felt she had to. The test proved that even though she had stopped working at the dial factory years earlier, she exhaled radium with every single breath. After she died June 18, 1925, she became the first of the radium girls to be autopsied. Dr. Martlin found radium everywhere, in her bones, her blood, her organs. The highest concentrations were where she felt the most pain, her legs and her jaw. Radium had even worn away her left leg so that it was four full centimeters shorter than her right, hence her limp. Her sister Marguerite was sick too. Marguerite got the job because of her older sister, Sarah. She started at the same company in August of 1919. She was described as giggly and loved nice clothes and and nice hair. None of that mattered anymore after Sarah died, and Marguerite realized she'd follow soon, too. So the once giggly girl became a plaintiff in the first lawsuit against USCR. It wouldn't be the last. That was in 1925. And by this time, we know that at least one man at the company had been aware for more than 10 years that radium was dangerous. How we know this is thanks to a woman named Grace Fryer. She had been incredibly excited when she'd been offered the job at the United States Radium Corps. She started in 1917, just four days after World War I was declared. She was one of 10 children, so she came from a large family, and she was one of the fastest dial painters that the company had. She'd go into work to lip, dip, and paint and chat with her coworkers, who were really more like friends. She was socking away significant money. Then, one day... In 1918, Dr. Van Sanhockey, who had created the paint and who had co-founded Radium Luminous Materials Corporation, walked through. He never came down to the studio, but he walked through and caught her lip pointing. And he said to her, he says, don't do that. It'll make you sick. This scared Grace. So she confronted a manager and said, what gives? Should I be worried about this? She was emphatically told no. Their bosses said, look at all these products with radium in them that are so good for you. Why would we give you something that would be bad for you? You're so lucky to be working here. Nothing's going to make you glow like radium does. They were right. Grace Fryer would bitterly remember Von Soshaki's warning and the subsequent reassurances of her bosses a few years later when she suddenly started limping. As her symptoms worsened, she got more and more pissed off. She decided to sue. In 1927, a group of women banded together, a group that included Molly's sister Quinta and Albina, and filed a lawsuit demanding $150,000. And the company balked. Representatives said, sure, some workers have died, but it isn't the radium. They said that when they were hiring workers, they tried to give some questionable women a break. 
you know, lower class women who should have been grateful for the amazing opportunity and hefty paychecks. It just so happened that some of these people got sick in other ways, other lower class ways. They blamed syphilis a fair bit. That the illnesses didn't all present in the same way helped bolster the company's argument. There were definite similarities. The trouble usually began in the girls' mouths, jaw pain and loose teeth, but not always. Some girls were hit with sudden fatigue. Some complained that the bones in their feet or shoulders were achy. To their credit, news reporters of the day didn't buy the company's insistence that all of these illnesses were unconnected. They pushed back and wrote about the horrible symptoms and pain the women experienced. Then, soon enough, they started writing about the deaths. Each woman who died sparked another headline. The company, of course, wanted the bad media coverage to go away, so they settled with the suing women for $10,000 apiece, a fraction of what was requested, but the women welcomed it because they had medical bills to pay. Despite all this, the United States Radium Corp kept churning out glow-in-the-dark dials, and the women hired continued to lip, dip, paint. And so did some newer colleagues in a different plant halfway across the country. This is my sister. How she looked at 17 before she went to work at the radium dial. And she looked a picture of health. She's such a pretty girl. This woman, featured in the 1987 documentary Radium City, was sisters with Margaret Looney, whom friends called Peg. The photo she describes is of a fresh-faced, dark-haired woman with a short flapper-style bob, which was the style of the time. She worked not in Orange, New Jersey, but in Ottawa, Illinois, a plant that opened in October 1922 and also taught its workers the same lip-pointing technique. Peg got the job when she was 17 and began to limp a few years later. When she'd come home after work, she would have to lay down and rest. I can see her walking down the street. She limped. It all seemed to settle in her hip. Of course, it was all through her bones. This is the point of the story where any ambiguity about liability goes away. Technically, of course, the company didn't admit guilt when agreeing to settle, but it had still cost them a chunk of change. And by this point in the 1920s, there really was no arguing that radium was perfectly safe. After all, they had their own scientists and chemists wear protective clothing, including lead aprons when handling radium. I mean, wouldn't they extrapolate that to think, geez, maybe it really is a bad idea to swallow the stuff? Instead, on June 7th, 1928, years after the deaths began, the Ottawa plant began running an advertisement in local newspapers that insisted radium poisoning didn't exist. In fact, it said, it had hired well-known doctors and technical experts to conduct physical and medical exams on employees and... Quote, nothing even approaching such symptoms or conditions has ever been found by these men. On the contrary, they have commented on the high standard of health and appearance of our employees. End quote. The last line of the ad read, The health of the employees of the Radium Dial Company is always foremost in the minds of its officials. As Kate Moore says, They could have used what happened in New Jersey as a warning. They could have used it to say, you know what, this is going to be the same and we're going to hold our hands up and we're going to tell the girls, you know what, this is dangerous, you need to stop. They didn't do that at all. They lied to them. They actively lied to them. 
The body count caused by those lies was only beginning. A lot of the women who worked at the dial painting companies left after a few years. Some got married and opted not to work outside the home. Some simply got different jobs. And some saw their co-workers starting to fall ill and got worried that maybe there really was a connection between the illnesses in the workplace. But not Peg Looney. When she saw the ad her employer plays promising that the company would have shut down operations right away if they had even suspected the work was dangerous, she was relieved. Sure, she was tired all the time and had this inexplicable limp, but the company's doctors had checked her out, and here, in black and white, printed in the local newspaper, were the results that said, don't worry, it's nothing. In reality, that's not what the test said at all. She had been found to be radioactive when the company tested her in 1925. They never released those results to her. Marie Rossiter knew Margaret, a.k.a. Peg, really well. The two hung out together, went dancing together, and they even dated a pair of cousins at one point. And she was my best friend, and she was a good worker too. And then before I knew it, she got sick and had the broken jawbone. It never healed. In two years, she was dead. She was set to get married soon to a guy named Chuck, who fought alongside her to find an answer to her illness. By 1928, she could barely walk. Chuck used to put Peg in the little wagon when she got so bad and pulled her up to where we used to have the picnic. She couldn't walk, so he just pulled, put her in the wagon away we went. Peg didn't quit her job, though. The company told her that the job wasn't to blame. Her family didn't have the money to cover her medical bills, so she worked to pay the bills for the ailments she didn't know her job was to blame for. In early August 1929, Peg collapsed at work. The company gave her family no say in what hospital she was treated at, nor was she allowed visitors in her room. She died within two weeks. The company moved quickly to cremate her, but as one of her sisters says, And my brother-in-law happened to be there, and he says, No way is she going to be buried that way. She's a good Catholic girl, and she's going to have a, a mass and a whole funeral. They also insisted on an autopsy. The company wasn't keen at first, but then offered up one of its doctors to perform it. The family agreed, but on a condition. They wanted their family doctor to attend the autopsy, too. The company happily agreed. They had this autopsy set for a certain time. When our doctor went, the autopsy had been performed an hour before he got there. And they said diphtheria. Peg's doctor didn't get to see her after that. She was buried, and life moved on. Back at Radium Dial, Catherine Wolf Donahue, like Peg, aimed to stick things out. Also like Peg, she had gone through a stage of suspicion when she thought maybe radium was to blame, but the bosses told her straight to her face there was no such thing as radium poisoning. Why, radium will make your cheeks rosy, they assured. By the late 1920s, Catherine was having fainting spells and her limp was beyond pronounced. She asked to see the company doctor, but it never happened. Then, in 1931, she was called into the boss's office and fired. They said she was making the other workers uncomfortable. It wasn't a good look for the company to have her limping around. This, of course, pissed her off, but she had an illness to figure out and a life to live. In 1933, she gave birth to a little boy named Tommy. The next year brought daughter Mary Jane. 
Catherine handled the pregnancies okay, and the baby seemed healthy, though Mary Jane was such a small thing. By age two, she maybe weighed 10 pounds. As Catherine continued to deteriorate, more of her friends died. Not only that, but a billionaire sportsman, sort of the LeBron James of his day, but with golf, by the name of Eben Byers, had made international headlines. Byers had been a huge proponent of radium products, especially a product called Radithor, which was distilled water and radium isotopes. It was touted a patented medicine, and doctors would get kickbacks for prescribing the stuff. Byers was prescribed Radithor in 1927 and began taking several doses each day. And at first, he said the stuff made him feel great, more muscular. By 1930, though, the effects wore off and he quit Radithor. But by then, of course, the damage had been done. He started suffering from headaches and losing weight. His teeth fell out. His lawyer told the Federal Trade Commission that all that remained of Byers' upper jaw were two front teeth. The rest had been removed, as had most of his lower jaw. His bone tissue was disintegrating and holes had formed in his skull. His death on March 31, 1932, at age 51, brought the end of the radium products. And yet, the radium girls were still being told that they were crazy, they were perfectly fine, or that their illnesses had nothing to do with the years of radium exposure they'd had on the job. On Easter Sunday in 1937, Catherine Donahue's priest came by to give her communion, a kind gesture because she was too weak to go to church. And as she received the symbol of Christ's body, part of her jawbone broke through the flesh inside of her mouth. She decided it was time to sue. Now, to be clear, other lawsuits had peppered the courts nationwide. I mean, these cases rarely involve just one set of litigants, despite how they're usually presented in the movies. But the suit filed by Catherine and several of her Ottawa colleagues is the one that finally broke through. Marie Rossiter, whose voice you heard earlier, took the reins as the de facto leader. She and a small group of women reached out to reporters who wrote heartbreaking stories about their plights with big headlines. Radium Death on Rampage read one in the Chicago Daily Times, and the stories were picked up nationwide. Finally, after shopping around for years, looking for a lawyer willing to even look at their case against this powerful company, the women found a guy named Leonard Grossman who was willing to sue. With Catherine as the lead plaintiff, five Ottawa women sued Radium Dial to cover their medical and dental bills and also lost wages. The company fought tooth and nail, delaying as much as they could. This is annoying under normal circumstances, but in this specific case, it was straight up cruel. The women were deteriorating fast, and it seemed the company was just wanting to drag things out in hopes they'd simply die. It's tough to sue when you're dead. Catherine was fading the fastest. She weighed just over 60 pounds. She had to keep a tissue pressed to her mouth so that the oozing pus wouldn't dribble down her face. I'm sorry for the stomach-turning description. In reality, I'm being quite tempered. Catherine held on, desperately wanting her day in court. In truth, when the first day of testimony finally came, she was too sick to go, but she insisted she go anyway. Her husband and friends carried her into the courtroom. A doctor took the stand and was asked a blunt question. 
Is Catherine Donahue's condition fatal? The doctor reluctantly gave a blunt reply. In the courtroom was the first time after years of suffering that she was told her life expectancy was just a few months. She fainted and then, and then woke and screamed hysterically in the courtroom because nobody had ever had the guts to tell her it was fatal. A newspaper photographer snapped a photo of her wailing that is absolutely haunting. Catherine was removed from the courtroom and taken to an office where she was laid on a desk to recover. The date of the next hearing, she was absolutely too weak to travel. So the lawyer Leonard Grossman spearheaded efforts to take the courtroom to her. The judge, the witnesses, the plaintiffs, everyone traveled to Catherine's home where she gave testimony as she lay on the couch in her living room. Her voice was weak, but she made it through. It wasn't for herself. It was to ensure her husband and her two children weren't saddled with impossible medical debt after she died. And it was also for her friends. Some weren't showing symptoms yet, but everyone knew they could at any moment. Some were in the early stages of sickness, with no clue how many months or years of treatment might await them. Literally on their deathbed, some of these women, and they're watching out for other women. Catherine Donahue and her co-plaintiffs won the lawsuit. Radium Dial appealed. The appeal was denied, and Catherine heaved a sigh of relief. Until the company appealed again. Catherine died the next day. The company lost that appeal as well, and then appealed again. In the end, they lost the case eight times, with it finally being put to rest in 1939 when the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear it, in turn upholding the lower court's decision. The decision came 11 years after Radium Dial had run paid ads promising that they valued their workers' health far more than any profits. No one ever faced any criminal charges in the deaths of these many women, but in the wake of the madness, the U.S. government did at least pass stricter laws protecting workers, especially those regarding occupational diseases. At the time they first filed suit in New Jersey, for example, there had just been a law brought in that there was workers' compensation if workers got sick through their work. But there were only nine diseases listed. Um, so if you got sick through your work and it wasn't one of those nine diseases, you had absolutely you know, nothing. Even if your work had, had killed you, there were there was no protection there. Companies could act uh, with impunity. And yet, because of the Radium Girls case, people realized that this was immoral and unjust and downright wrong. So laws were changed. Statutes of limitation were lengthened. Workers' comp was created. There's a lot of little laws that would take too long to describe. But in broad strokes, the outcome of this case was that it made it against the law for employers to make you sick. That wasn't the case before. And the women's legacy goes beyond the law books. One of the things that scientists were able to do was to use the data from these girls to determine what long-term effects of nuclear fallout would be. It was because of that that Kennedy signed a ban on um, nuclear arms. Not every woman died early. Many did, with sarcomas suddenly appearing, often moving so quickly that the life it infected was snuffed out within months. But some had full lives. Generally, the younger the woman was when she started the job and the longer she kept it, the more likely she was to die early. But there was no hard and fast rule. Some were just lucky. The last known radium girl died in 2015. But those who died early 
whose bodies absorbed lethal amounts of this poison, will never be free of it. If you exhumed them today, their bones would still be glowing. My research on this case began as I investigated the death covered in season three of my firstborn podcast, Accused. The man at the center of the case worked in a uranium processing plant. Kate Moore's book, The Radium Girls, is a great read, and special thanks to her for the interview. For this episode, I also watched a few documentaries and read several medical papers. Plus, I read all the contemporary news coverage I could find. This is one of those cases where journalists did their jobs well. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>